Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Basplega, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. So I wanted to start off with a a quote by Tedros, who's the director of the General of the World Health Organization. And this is a really key uh, message that he's talking about. He stated that we're not just fighting an epidemic, but we're fighting an infodemic. Fake news spreads faster and more easily than this virus, and it is just as dangerous. And I couldn't agree with him more. We are seeing that a lot of people are experiencing this misinformation, and as a result of that, they are unfortunately not receiving the information they need to make decisions about their health. So this is, uh, aside from the pandemic itself, the the lack of of good information and misinformation is really hurting us uh, in being able to achieve the success of, of getting beyond this pandemic. So one of the reasons for this is because of of technology. We're seeing that technology has been an enabler of misinformation, and we're seeing that people can share misinformation much quicker than we used to uh, in the past. And so one of the the issues around technology is that news circulation has changed. We used to have editors where we would receive our information, and now we know that everybody can post, and there are no editors necessary to be able to post this misinformation. And so social media and the different uh, modalities of being able to access social media really spread misinformation. It spreads misinformation fast and we're seeing it through multiple channels. So not just one social media platform, but we're seeing multiple social media platforms, videos, uh, tweets, all of these things are, are really allowing for information to spread very fast. So just a little bit of background about who uses social media. And we really have seen a a tremendous increase in the percentage of people using social media. So back in 2005, we had about 5% of American adults who used one social media platform. Uh, But as you see from the numbers here, we see that this has increased tremendously. So in 2011, uh, just about six, seven years later, we're seeing 50% of American adults now using uh, a social media platform. So really a significant increase. And then in 2021, 72%, so three out of four people are engaging in some sort of social media platform. And so we're also seeing that social media is engaging younger and younger individuals. And so we're seeing that young uh, adults are uh, adopting this uh, information faster. They're using sites at a much higher level. And then we're also, like I mentioned earlier, seeing adults really increase their use of social media. And what was interesting is during the pandemic, when we were isolated at home, uh, a lot of us were connecting to social media to try to have an outlet to socialize with people. Uh, So we saw that that this number increased during that time as well. So that definitely perpetuated um, the increase in some of this. So which social media platforms are people accessing? And so the two that we see that are by far the highest are YouTube and Facebook. So video content um, and then the Facebook content, they are definitely the the most heavily used online platforms. Um, You can see here, Facebook is about 69%. 
Uh, Instagram is also up there 40%, uh, LinkedIn 28%. But one that's really interesting that picked up a lot of traction during uh, this pandemic and then the last few years is TikTok, uh, where we saw a lot of uh, information specifically about uh, COVID, the vaccines. Um, that was a, an area where we saw a lot of increase. Uh, but seven in 10 Americans use social media. They use it to connect, to engage, to share information. Uh, and there's just a lot of information that's happening here. We also see a breakdown here uh, by demographics, you know, populations that are white versus black versus Hispanic. You can see the percentage of those populations accessing these platforms. Um, so I'll just point out one example uh, for the Hispanic population, you see a 19% use in, in, in LinkedIn versus for white or, or black, it's a higher 29 to 27%. So understanding where people are going is just a key, um, a key thing to keep in mind, because if you're trying to target a specific population for information, it's good to know which platforms they're accessing and where to go to share that information. So um, a study was published in Science from MIT, and this was an incredible study. The study was entitled The Spread of True and False News um, Online. And so what they discovered is that false, it says that false news um, information travels farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth. So I just want to repeat that. False news travels further, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth. And that's really important to keep in mind because we know that a lot of the information that you're seeing out there, if you're not paying attention to the information, you might be reading misinformation. And so researchers in this particular study uh, in, at MIT noted that humans are the ones that are actually spreading the misinformation and not bots. Um, and I think that was a perception that we, we all had, that the misinformation was somehow being retweeted by, by some sort of bot. But in reality, um, we humans are the ones that are primarily responsible for the spread of misinformation. So going back to the questions I asked earlier, I wanted to highlight the answers here. The spread of true and false news um, online is, is listed here, 70% of falsehoods are, are retweeted more than the truth. So 70%, which is an incredible uh, difference that we're seeing that the falsehoods are spreading much, much more quickly than the truth. Also, it takes about six times as long to reach 1,500 people as it does for false stories to reach the same number of people. So it takes a lot longer for the truth to get to people than the false news. Um, so that's a concerning statistic, again, because what we're seeing is that misinformation, false information gets to people way quicker. It's retweeted quicker. It reaches more people quicker than the truth. So this is um, a significant problem that we really have to overcome and, and address because what we're seeing here is that vaccine opposition increased almost by almost by 100% um, across the data source and 200% increase in opposition on Twitter. So what we're seeing is that it's really, really impacting people's ability uh, to receive uh, information that's accurate. And as a result, what we're seeing is opposition to things that we know uh, help people with public health efforts like vaccinations. We saw the same things when we were um, addressing mask use. And so when you start seeing that misinformation is hurting populations, this is when we have to really pay attention and, and try to do things to debunk and, and to be able to address the concerns that we have out there. So 
the reality is that only a small number of accounts are responsible for most of the opposition content. And what's happening is that a lot of the content um, from these sites are being monetized. And so if we know that information is being shared and people like to share the falsehoods and reshare, um, those clicks actually become money to these, uh, these opposition sites and they're actually making money from sharing misinformation because information that's false tends to be shared more. At the same time, we're seeing that doctors and health officials are being threatened um, and attacked online. And social media platforms have been trying to crack down, but the volume has been so persistent that it takes a whole effort of, of a lot of individuals to be able to combat this. So definitely there is some responsibility for the social media platforms to, to crack down on this. Uh, just even within the, the last few, I would say the last few months, we've seen more alerts, more warnings as you're posting uh COVID-related information, just to highlight that you should be paying attention uh, to this information. So, but why, why does this spread? This is a really key question and, and a really key thing to understand. The reason false news um, spreads is because it's more novel and people like to share novel information. And this is still part uh, of the study that I mentioned earlier from MIT. Uh, so on social networks, people do gain attention by being the first to share previously unknown information and possibly false information. And you could probably uh, speak to an experience that you've had when you've shared some information that's novel, a story that's breaking. People like to hear it. People like to reshare it. People like to post it. And then that gets retweeted really, really quick. So we have to be careful about what we're sharing and make sure it's the true information and not the false information that people are then going to uh, pick up and then run with. And then unfortunately, you know, once once you let that uh, tweet go out, sometimes it's really difficult to pull it back if it's already been shared in multiple uh, areas. So there's different emotional profiles that was discovered by this study. Um, they noted two different types of profiles, one profile, emotional profiles for false news and one for true news. So what false news does is that it actually causes more surprise and disgust, which is actually one of the reasons why people tend to tweet and retweet and share information because of that, the type of feeling that they get from that false news. Now, true news is characterized a little less um, exciting. It's, it's characterized by sadness, anticipation, and, and trust. And that doesn't tend to invoke the same kinds of emotion that cause people to share. So that is one of the reasons why we see such a higher percentage of people being uh, a higher percentage of people sharing false information rather than the truth. And it's really complicated. So there are many ways that you might be sharing information and sometimes you might not even realize that you're sharing false information. And so it's really good for us to be paying attention to the content that we're sharing. But these are the different types of profiles of the type of information that you might be sharing that could be uh, misinformation. So I wanted to point out a couple, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but I definitely wanted to point out to a few that we know um, like satire or parody. Sometimes we see something that's posted, we know it's a parody and we retweet it, but somebody else might not understand that it's not the truth. So there's no intention uh, to cause harm, but it does have a potential to fool. And I'll show you a few examples as we go through uh, on some of these examples here. Um, some of the other examples are manipulated content. There are truly some uh, content out there that is manipulated. And I'll give you an example. 
Um, if you've ever seen a post where they might have a picture where it's showing a lot of people there, but the picture is not even from that event. That is a type of manipulated content to make it appear like somebody's, you know, attending like a rally, for example. Uh, but the reality is it, that's not even a picture of, of the truth. And so when you see it, you tend to believe it because it's even a picture that's included. Uh, other examples are things that are trigger like a clickbait, like it might have a, a headline that's very interesting. It tries to show some sort of outcome. But then when you actually spend the time to read the article, it really isn't anything like the headline. So it's really important to read further, go beyond the headline, because the information that you might be sharing uh, does not reflect what the headline actually does. And I think that's a lot of times uh, stories are positioned in a certain way to get people to click or reshare before really understanding what the content is. And then just some other uh, other types of complicated content are things that are truly, truly manipulated. They're intending to harm, they're intending to share misinformation, or they might even be using um, a resource like the CDC, for example, where the CDC didn't actually put out the content. So these are the things to pay attention to as you're as you're looking at information for your own self, um, as you're trying to dismiss uh, myths, uh, understanding what kind of information patients might be seeing, and then being able to prepare to be able to address some of these concerns. So I already mentioned some of these examples, but I definitely wanted to share some of uh, the ones that I, I found to be somewhat interesting. Um, so the next few slides are, what would you classify um, the type uh, of information that we're seeing? And so let's go through the ones that I already mentioned. Here is the first one. So this is a headline example that I picked out. Um, how would you classify this headline? 153 hospital employees fired, resigned over COVID-19 um, vaccine mandate. And the source is The Onion. So when you look at this information, it seems like a very legitimate headline. Uh, I think we saw many, many headlines like this. What's interesting about this is the source. If you are familiar with The Onion, The Onion is a parody satire type of publication. And what is phenomenal to me is the amount of... Um, reality that we're seeing from some of the parody now. And so when you look at something like this, you might say, oh, wow, absolutely. This is the truth. I heard it. I saw it happen. Um, the reality is that The Onion is truly a satire parody type of publication. So if you're reading something from this, you should be very skeptical about what the information is that is being shared. Now, I'm going to go to a different uh, article here, or a different source, the Texas Tribune. How would you classify this headline? More than 150 employees resign or are fired from Houston hospital system after refusing to get vaccinated. If you looked at the previous headline, it is very, very similar to this headline. Uh, but one source is a parody source and the other is a, a legitimate source, a Texas Tribune. Um, and this hospital system is obviously in Texas and Houston. So uh, I looked at this source and this is a legitimate source, but you can see that they're so similar. What you have to be careful about is the content and reading a little bit further to find out, you know, what the true information is. And so if you're sharing one or the other and you don't realize the onion is a parody, you could be sharing significantly false misinformation without labeling it. It's not, you know, it's not uh, a problem to share. It just, you know, I would highlight it in some way that it's a parody or a joke or something like that. So this is an example of a clickbait and misleading information. And this, the source of this is a Daily Mail Online breakthrough. Uh, as scientists create a new uh, cowpox style virus that can kill every type of cancer. And then you can see some of the information here. 
what is concerning about this is like, if you start reading the content, it sounds legitimate. You have a professor who's testing a virus. You're looking at a biotech company. Uh, but it's things like this that you should be concerned about every, every type of cancer. That seems to be quite far reaching to know that one, you know, one type of breakthrough can address every single type of cancer because we know that is very complicated. Doesn't mean it's completely false, but anything like this would, to me, immediately trigger um, something uh, to do further research on. So Americans accessing political news from social media are more likely to have uh, heard unproven claims and theories. And so what we've seen is that people who turn to social media almost exclusively for their news are likely to hear more misinformation. So they might be hearing more misinformation from their social media than, say, their cable TV, their print media. Um, and that's really important to know that, that people that tend to access all of their information from social media are seeing things coming through that have been uh, what we call conspiracy theories or, or myths that we're hearing out there. So it's really, really important to realize uh, that just because that is where people are accessing some of the misinformation. And because of the retweets and because of the reposts, um, they might be seeing things uh, uh, that have been coming through. It's just some of the recent examples that always surprise me uh, are, you know, association of a chip within a, a, a vaccination. That that was, I couldn't even believe people were really believing that's a truth. But a lot of that has been tweeted and shared through social media where you might not see that as readily in the New York Times or the Washington Post because they tend to vet and uh, have editors to, you know, to look at that information and then avoid publication of things that they've actually researched. So that's just something to, to keep in mind as you're talking to somebody, if that's where they're going for their news directly, social media, you know, they might have more misinformation that people that are reading it or, or seeing it in other uh, vehicles. So one of the things that's been happening here is really looking at ways for us to be able to dispel this truth. And I was really appreciating this, but um, the American Medical Association through their House of Delegates are really trying to promote public health and address the social media misinformation. And so we're seeing because of pressures like this, that, that platforms like Facebook and platforms like uh, Twitter are now actually citing concerning posts. They'll actually highlight it and say, have a, like a warning that says, you know, be careful with information. This might not be true. So it just gives you an alert to pay attention to not take everything at face value. And these are some of the House of Delegate type of um, items that they listed. So they're encouraging social media companies and organizations to strengthen their content and their, pot, um, their moderation policies related to public health and medical information. And again, they're just putting pressure on these organizations or on these companies to be able to do that. And then they're really wanting for uh, people to collaborate with relevant stakeholders to address a problem that's appropriate and, you know, be very concerned about the algorithms that are fed to people. Sometimes you're getting biased information because that's the content that you're, you know, used to seeing. And so those algorithms are sometimes feeding you uh, misinformation because of the clicks that you've historically uh, been able to to target yourself. So it's really important to when we're looking at these algorithms to try to get a more balanced approach rather than be so biased one way or the other. And that's what they're trying to address with this one, to try to make sure that there's more balance with those algorithms. Um, they're also really pushing for support and dissemination of accurate 
medical and public health information. And so again, this is just something that I, I appreciate that they're taking a stand on this and, and making it public. And then this last post that they had here is to work with public health agencies in an effort to establish relationships with journalists and use agencies to enhance public uh, research in dissemination of accurate and public health information. So all of these um, items from the House of Delegates are just very proactive ways to address the information there. Um, the, the, the discussions that have been had are very critical. And because of these types of pressures, we have started to see a change, uh, but there's still so much more work to do and we have to be part of that solution. So this is um, just uh, one of the last headlines I have here, but I think it's an important one. And it's just, again, I'm gonna go back to my favorite source, the parody source, the onion. And it, one of the things that I've been hearing a lot is do your own research. So this is the onion. Uh, headline, Vaccine Skeptic does own research by enrolling 45,000 friends in a double-blind clinical trial. So this is making fun of the fact that, you know, people believe that they can do their own research. If you really want to do your own research, you would be doing a double-blind clinical trial. So you would have to enroll a lot of friends to do your own research rather than go to the real scientific sources uh, that are doing double-blind clinical trials. So social media is not uh, research. It is just information sharing. And there are people that are really dedicated to doing clinical trials to try to get the right information. So again, just another, you know, funny, funny parody, but truly speaks to a lot of the learning that we still have to do. So I did want to touch uh, on a really critical issue, which is health literacy. So health literacy is really important. And this is something we've been dealing with even post pandemic, but the definition of health literacy or what it involves is uh, people's knowledge and competence to obtain, process and understand health information and services to make appropriate health decisions. And so we have been very bombarded with a lot of complications related to the COVID pandemic that has even complicated health literacy even more. So just to kind of level set, even before the pandemic, we had nine out of 10 Americans who struggled to understand health information, which is very high. And you can understand that the healthcare system is very, very complicated, complex. Even somebody with an engineering degree uh, might not understand the, the words that we use for the healthcare system because they specialize in a different field. So when we have discussions around prior authorizations, when we have discussions around uh, deductibles, how to sign up for Medicare. These are very complicated issues. And so people struggle with that. So now because of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're hearing a lot of new terms and new phrases that people might not know. And I don't know about you, but before the COVID pandemic, I had not been very familiar with um, the mRNA process to the degree I am now. And so it's taken some time to catch up with the new terms, vectors, vaccines, all of these things that uh, we hadn't been using so much because of COVID, now we're using uh, every day. So you can imagine if you as a healthcare professional are trying to keep up with this information, what the lay public is trying to do, they're, they're probably overwhelmed with, with the understanding of you know, this information. So people that experience a lot of health disparities also really struggle with understanding the healthcare system and healthcare terms. So this is even more complex and complicated for people experiencing uh, health disparities. So definitely wanted to highlight that. So I just wanted to highlight some of the best practices as we're experiencing health literacy previous to the pandemic, but now during the pandemic, um, it's really important to make sure that the information that you're sharing is at a level that people understand, you know, break it down, uh, make sure that people are, are really 
getting their questions answered. And that really goes a long ways for them to try to understand and, and go beyond those myths and that misinformation. Um, I'm going to share a, a few examples of things that are good techniques or, or good best practices as you're um, addressing health literacy. So these are eight ways to improve health literacy. You know, one of the things that we've all been taught is to ask open-ended questions and really uh, get an understanding of what people are 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 taking from the information you're sharing, from that written information, including the prescription label. If you ask yes or no questions, you tend not to get more um, the information that you need and you might not be having an opportunity to understand what the mis misunderstandings are. So open-ended questions allow for people to share more and then you can actually walk them through whatever might be confusing. Um, teach back method and show back method are two other incredible techniques. And I, when I was practicing in as a certified diabetes educator, one of the things that I would do for a glucose monitor is I would teach it, I would show them, and then I would have the person repeat back, show me, actually walk through uh, the device. And it was amazing how many things we were able to uh, work on together to really get people to the point where they could do it themselves. If you just talk about it and explain it and expect somebody to go open a box up at home and do it themselves, that's very, it could be very complicated and very difficult. So teach back and show back um, are very important to do, especially uh, if you if you have the time. And I just want to mention that sometimes you don't have the time, uh, but there might be supportive uh, supportive you know individuals around around you, a technician, for example, a medical assistant, uh, others, a certified diabetes educator that you can partner with to be able to create the time you need to to have this done. Uh, another technique is to hand a patient a written material upside down to see if somebody will turn it right side up and see if they're actually following with you. If they don't turn it, that might be a sign that they might be having trouble reading it, understanding it. Um, it's just a technique to see if somebody is understanding the, the information that you're sharing. And then a couple of other things here I wanted to mention, simple language. The more you can uh, talk in a way that people understand, the easier it will be for them. Um, so I always, this is an example, I say swallow instead of take, fat instead of lipids, belly instead of abdomen, just words that people understand. Um, I also like to speak more slowly, not necessarily louder, but more slowly so people can understand, especially if somebody uh, is bilingual. Like when I was bilingual and I mostly understood Spanish before I really became fluent with English, uh, I did. I appreciated when people spoke slower to me so I could understand and track. Louder didn't help, slower did. And then using graphics and pictures go a long ways. Just not as much written information is very key. And then always looking at the appropriate grade level. So there are some sites out there that really address health literacy materials, multiple languages, things that can really facilitate health literacy. So these are another set of techniques here to really navigate the infodemic um, that we have. You just go beyond, you know, these really address what I was mentioning earlier about misinformation. Assess the source. And one of the examples I mentioned was the onion. That's a source. If you knew that that source was parody, you would be able to immediately tell that that's a parody site. You know, go beyond the headlines. Do some more research. Identify the author. Um, so just keep these, these different things in mind. And one of the ones I like is number six here. Check your biases. Sometimes we come with our own biases and immediately we'll dismiss or we won't look at the uh, the opposite view because of our own biases. And so that really cripples us in being able to have a, a, an objective set of information. And then use fact, checker, fact checkers. I definitely double check. I 
I Google in a different site. I go and use a different search engine uh, for a story if it if it looks like it might be um, not legitimate. So I actually like to double check before I post, and that way I'm not uh, going to be sharing misinformation. Not to say that I'm 100%, but at least you know trying these different techniques really helps. So these are just tools for patients. Just think before you share, you know, pledge to pause. This is uh, one of the organization called Verified has really worked to try to dispel misinformation. And again, it's the same things I mentioned earlier, you know, who made the information? Why are you sharing this? What is the source? When was it published? Where did it come from? Think about all of these things before you repost so that you're not contributing to that, that misinformation uh, infodemic. And then for my last set of slides, I just wanted to share some fact checking tools that are out there that are really, really key to know. Um, this Google reverse image, as I mentioned earlier, when you see a picture where there's a lot of people participating, you know, just keep in mind that there are uh, sites where you can actually verify or not whether an image is true. These are other fact checking tools, 10i, Photo Forensics, um, and here's some more fact checking websites. One of the ones that I use quite a bit is called Snoops, um, Hoax Layers. All of these will actually, they will actually track information that's being shared and they will share with you the percentage accuracy of a story if it's been manipulated. Uh, so all of these are really, really good re resources to have when you're trying to verify the truth. So the U.S. Surgeon General actually released an advisory statement on confronting health misinformation. And I wanted to give you this quote because I'm going to be using these principles throughout the rest of this presentation that they talked about. But really... The, it all boils down to this. Limiting the spread of health misinformation is a moral and civic imperative that will require a whole of society effort. And pharmacists are a huge part of that society. We're the most accessible healthcare professionals. And so being on social media makes us even more accessible than we already are to our communities. So for this next section, I want to talk about the actual part of misbuffing on social media. You've got your social media page set up. You're ready to debunk some myths. And so we're going to talk about pre-bunking, which is a term some of you may not be familiar with, as far as watching for red flags when you're sharing content. Because if you want to be on social media, you don't necessarily have to share all your original content, but you may be sharing content from other people as well. Also, how to create content to truly debunk, to make it successful, and then collaborating with others. So as I talk forward, I want to really focus on there's two types of these false information. And Sandra has hinted at some of this before. But I'm going to be focusing on misinformation, which is the most common, where there's misleading information that doesn't really agree with the best evidence out there. But a lot of times this is spread unintentionally. It may be that satire post that she mentioned before. It may be something that was um, kind of based in fact, but misconstrued in the results. Whereas disinformation is that information that's spread with malicious intent. So there's monetary or political gain involved. And that's a different type of information spreading that um, I'm not really going to get into. So pre-bunking is a term that I think is really awesome. It is a little bit difficult to do, but you may have heard in healthcare prevention is better than cure. And guess what? In misinformation, it is the same way. So if you can address possible myths before they even start, and the, inter uh, the user later interacts or encounters misinformation, they're less likely to share it because they already found out that, hey, this is probably not correct. So you can use logic-focused corrections or fact-focused corrections. Either one are okay, where you kind of walk somebody through why logistically something doesn't make sense or focusing on facts or statistics from a research paper. 
But in either way, it tends to work. And it works just as effective as debunking this individual information for a person. And it may reduce the spread of misinformation. There is some back and forth on how well this works compared to spreading um, misinformation and then debunking it later. But the idea is that if that misinformation never gets spread around, we don't have to worry about it. And so when it comes to sharing or spreading misinformation, one of the ways is through posts that people have seen and then say, like Sandra Saul, have this emotional response and say, I want to share this with somebody else. I've never heard this information. This is new. And so I have a little red flag checklist that this is what I keep in the back of my mind before I share any post. And it's a simpler version of the tools that Sandra gave you. Hers are a great opportunity, especially if you're going to be writing an article or things like that. But this is like a quick check if you're going to share a Instagram post or something like that. Number one is I always check the motive. Does this content creator have some sort of monetary gain or other gain from sharing this information with me? Do they sell a supplement that's going to be fixed by this information or something like that? I also try to check the date. So if it's available, when was this um, graphic or post put up? Was this information up to date for now? Obviously, with COVID-19, that information changes rapidly. So something that was posted a year ago is pretty much not relevant anymore. I also want to check the data. Can I find this information from another trustworthy source? So if it's just a graphic on Instagram, can I go to the CDC, the FDA, something like that, and find this information as well? And then lastly is checking that source. Sandra gave you a ton of resources for that. And if there is a source listed, making sure it's credible. And if there's not, can you find that source? And when you decide to make your own content, you're probably going to be thinking about some of the ways to debunk these medical misinformation or myths that you see online. This is something that I really enjoy doing and do a lot on my platforms. And these are the things that I try to encompass when I'm doing these posts. I want to focus on the facts. I want to show my source because, like I said, it's a red flag if I don't. I want to keep it simple and easy to understand and also collaborate with other trusted sources. So focusing on the facts may seem like an obvious choice, but a lot of times this is not how it's done on social media. So a lot of times people will say things like, it's a myth that antibiotics cure bacteria or cure viral infections. And that may be true, but when they see the misinformation or the myth, then they may think that is true and reinforce the myth, even if the post in the comments later on shares the facts. So trying to focus on the facts, like in this case, antibiotics do not work against viruses, only bacteria, you could see that the fact is there and you're not mentioning that myth. You also want to show your source. I know we talk about this a lot, but that is very important. And it doesn't matter if you're just writing it once down at the bottom of your graphic, putting it up in the video, putting it in a caption, or taking a screenshot of the article or guideline this information comes from, just having some way that the person on the other end of this post can follow up with the information that they are given. And then keeping it simple and easy to understand. You want to really focus on using patient-friendly language, like Sandra said, in person, but also when you're doing these posts. You want to also keep it short. You don't want to use a lot of complicated graphics and charts and talking about p-values and things like that that your patient's not going to understand and may confuse them when you're trying to debunk a myth. 
I also recommend creating colorful graphics. Graphics and pictures really do help, and that colorful aspect helps get the attention of the person who is reviewing the information. You also want to use an easy to read font because you could have the best post information, but if the font is so difficult to the read or it's too small and they can't see it, it's going to be hard for them to actually get the information and use it accordingly. And then last is collaborating with other trusted sources. This can be very beneficial for organizations to partner with other local organizations to maybe promote flu vaccines in the community or other events that may be going on. You can also collaborate with other pharmacists and healthcare professionals because multiple trusted sources can help build additional trust for patients for them to believe that information and maybe even be able to debunk a myth that is pretty ingrained in them and they had a lot of bias against in the first place. Just a little bit of a tip here, though, is to ensure that you collaborate with people that align with your audience and also verify those accounts to make sure that they are also spreading positive information and information that aligns with your values and what you believe in. And as you can see here, there are some risks associated with the social media accounts. So negative comments and haters is like some people like to call them. Um, Breaking social media policy set by your employer, potential loss of pharmacist license, and then cyber stalkers. So all of the above there. So no matter what you talk about, you could be talking about sunshine and rainbows and how much you love them, and you're going to find a hater out there. That is just what happens on social media. It's the unfortunate truth here. So when it comes to negative comments, you have a few options, and I will be honest, I have used every single one of these just depending on the particular situation, and you can choose to ignore the comment completely delete it from the profile. This is something that I will do after reporting the comment if it's spreading blatant false information because I don't want somebody to read that and maybe reinforce a false idea that they already have. You could provide a minimal response to their um, question if there's a question involved that may be a little bit negative. And then you can offer to take the discussion into direct messages as well because maybe they do have a question that you think needs to be answered, but it can get muddied down in that comment section. And additionally, if you have somebody who is abusive or constantly causing problems on your page or to other users that are interacting with your account, you can always block them and report them for that activity. And it's also important to follow your employer's social media policy and rules. So one thing I would recommend as you're getting started and setting up your account, if that is where you are at, is to know your social media's uh, policy for your employer before you start posting. Um, a lot of policies out there are pretty cut and dry when it comes to this, but if you're not sure, you can always contact your employer's public relations department for clarifying questions. Some other things you can do is avoid tagging or showing affiliation for your employer unless you are using like an account within your uh, company just so it can be clear that you are a separate entity from your employer. It's also recommended to include a disclaimer on your content that, you know, these ideas or the message I'm sharing is my own. Um, so there is no confusion. And if you are concerned about that, depending on what you're doing, you can always consult a lawyer to make sure you have the wording correct. And Right now, pharmacists, medical, or the pharmacy boards do not have any sort of 
regulation on pharmacist license as far as the misinformation or disinformation spreading. However, this is probably something that may change as we continue to see more medical boards taking action. So the Federation of State Medical Boards actually released a statement back in July of 2021 saying that they know that some physicians are spreading misinformation or disinformation, and now they're allowing state medical boards to discipline those individuals if they get a report from the public or other healthcare providers that they need to investigate these misinformation claims. And I just want to remind you here that as a pharmacist, we took an oath and part of that oath says, I will uphold myself and my colleagues to the highest principles of our professions, moral, ethical, and legal conduct. And definitely part of that is ethical piece there is sharing information that is um, misinforming to patients would be very unethical for us. And the last thing I want to talk about here is the cyber stalkers and cyber harassment. This is definitely a rare occurrence. Most of the time you can block somebody, you're done, you don't have to deal with them again. But this does happen and can pose a significant risk to you or your family. So being aware of those signs of cyber stalking is important and how to handle it. If you feel like you're being cyber stalked, this can include somebody after you blocking them, creating a new account to try to harass you, putting your information out in a public forum your address, things like that, digging really deep to find information that's personal and harmful to you and causing threats. There is a cyber helpline website that is available if this was ever to happen to you, but some of the things that you can do for this is block the user and report the user on the social media platforms itself. Do not engage with that person once you believe that they are at the point of harassment or stalking. You also want to keep track of all the instances of stalking harassment and then report it to the police. And then they may advise you to stay offline for a period of time and remove all your location tags so that they can not find you as easily. But while all of that sounds bad and scary, I do want to talk about some of the benefits of social media that I have personally experienced here because it has been a great thing for, I believe, um, just not my personal life, but also my professional life. It's been extremely beneficial to me. First off, I get that ability to contribute to better public health and really help patients understand the medication information that's being presented out there, information about the COVID-19 vaccine and things of that nature. It's also given you opportunities to increase my different communication skills. It's definitely a different skill set to talk to patients via social media posts on Instagram, tweets, and for my case, most of the time, YouTube videos. So learning this new set of skills, not just communication skills, but things such as graphic design and video editing that allows me to make better content for other professional things such as PDFs or things that I'm presenting to my coworkers. It also has given me the opportunity to improve my professional network. I have several colleagues that I have met online through social media platforms that have become friends, people I talk to frequently or turn to when I have a dilemma, and also finding people who are in the same space as me that I didn't have access to otherwise. And then you also can find additional professional opportunities. I have been able to do some really awesome things like speaking here with you guys today because of my social media presence. So I've been very grateful for those opportunities they have come and they have been worth every bit of those negative hater comments that I may have gotten on some of those YouTube videos. So I want to wrap up with the key takeaways here from my portion of the presentation. First is that social media algorithms are designed to spread information that can misinform users and we need to be aware of that. And I believe that pharmacists should be on social media because our patients are on social media. So we need to meet them where they are. 
Pharmacists can also reduce the spread of medical misinformation by pre-bunking and debunking health myths on social media. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.